Hello, and welcome, and it's really good to be here. I bring you greetings from Denver Presbyterian Church, which is located in the neighborhoods east of downtown Denver, which if you know anything about the way Denver is laid out, it's just a whole bunch of houses. And, <laughs> and so we actually meet in a middle school, so this actually feels so much different and delightful to be here because um, I don't know if you know anything about the end of the school year, but there is a residual odor <laughs> that lingers in middle schools toward the end of a school year. And this place is awesome. Um, also, I'm delighted to be here because, as was mentioned, I've known Brad uh, for a long time. And not only do we um, share in common being pastors in a Presbyterian context, um, which, of course, you know, church governance is part of our brand, so we have to talk about it all the time, but also we um, are friends. And we have been there for each other, have listened to each other's difficult stories. Um, I value Brad very much as somebody who can not just um, say true things to me, but he listens to me when I just need to vent. And um, so I'm really grateful to be here um, and to share with you just some things. Um, Brad did start me off by saying, keep it, keep it under 98 minutes and you're gold. So I've done the best I can to prep for that, and, um, but seriously, I, I am here and I hope that what I am sharing is going to be helpful, that it resonates with where you have already been as you've been looking at the book of Galatians, and that it doesn't end up being like John Mulaney's comment that sermons are book reports given by bad comedians. Um, so all that to be said... Um, are you familiar with the, the phrase magical thinking? Magical thinking is one of those states of mind where you just kind of take an idea and run with it as far as it can go, even if it makes no sense and has no bearing on reality or even sounds like reality. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because my wife and I are in the process of trying to find a car. And my timing, as usual, is excellent. Used cars are at the highest cost they've ever been, and new cars are suffering supply chain problems that are stretching into a third year of difficulty. So finding a car to buy has become this extended process. And so my magical thinking kicks in because I want to, I, I just start to wonder, what if the car fairy just visited me? and blessed me with a voucher. And that voucher basically gave me carte blanche where I could pick out whatever car I wanted and that all of the associated costs for the car and for owning it would be covered and taken care of. Like, it would free me from so many things. It would free me from having to sit in only partially comfortable chairs in a showroom while they go and do whatever organizing they need to do. Their only purpose is to sell cars, but I have to sit in a chair for 30 minutes while they go and do things. More than that, what if that voucher gave me a car that was so well-designed and yet so unassuming that I was free from having that car impact the way I think about myself or the way others think about me? That would be beautiful, right? Do you think this doesn't happen? If I drove here in a pickup, 
you might draw some conclusions about me. I did grow up in Texas. Some of those assumptions would be correct. Other things you might assume is that because I drove here in a Chevy pickup that I hate Ford. That's not necessarily true. I'm actually a Toyota man if given the choice. <laughs> so we assume things about other people, you know? And if you want a severely negative assumption, what do you assume about BMW or Tesla drivers? <laughs> right? There's, there's stuff that we assume about people based on their car. But let's just say this voucher gives you a car where nobody has any negative connotations or reads too much into why you have that car. You're not set apart by the car you drive. You just have a car. That would be freeing, wouldn't it? And how much more would that car set you free if it meant that you could have the capacity to be a better more conscientious driver. Now, I'm not making assumptions about you here. I'm just talking about myself. I am sometimes distractible while I'm driving. And sometimes I am aggressive in the way that I maybe, let's say, choose my lane placement. And I have this really unfortunate habit of talking aloud to the people in the other cars. Oh, paper plates, what happened to your last one? I just, I can't help it, you know? Oh, that lane change was really spectacular, but, you know, you're driving a Kia, so decision-making might not be the strong suit. Like, <laughs> I can't help it. There's this, like, judgy person in me that just flows out when I'm driving. What if I were freed of that by that magical car voucher? And hopefully, you're tracking with me, like I'm just giving exceptionally personal examples of something that's just a small picture of the wider picture of what Paul is telling us about the gospel in his letter to the Galatian church. He's telling us that we can actually be free, truly free, of the things that we're usually hung up on, that we can usually, we usually get bound up in thinking about ourselves in a variety of ways that's actually profoundly unhelpful, and that those ways that we get bound up thinking about ourselves don't have only to do with our salvation, but it has to do with how we think we're living our life. And so, as we get into this, we're going to discover what Paul is communicating here is that we really are truly, absolutely free. And when he says this, he's really pounding it, and I'm sure that you've heard sort of the preamble to this as you've been working your way through the, the, uh, the letter to the Galatian church. But Paul says there in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. What kind of freedom is this? Is it a freedom that says what we do doesn't matter? Well, in terms of how we relate to God, the way God has rescued us from the burden and the guilt of sin... It doesn't matter. We actually are free, so free that we can lie, we can steal, we can kill. I'm just going to let that sit there because I think we want the but to come in really quickly and bring the boundaries back and bring the fences back, right? Because we, we know that that's not actually helpful. And yet, the freedom we're given in Christ truly is 
a profound and absolute freedom. And then Paul frames it for us. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When we're talking about freedom, it's really important that we talk about what are we free from and what are we free to. Freedom from what? Freedom to what? In the context of the book of Galatians, he's talking about law-keeping as setting yourself apart as God's people. And he's very clear that the gospel is that Jesus Christ took your, my, our sin on himself, paid for it with his substitutionary death, and was raised to new life and offers us a new life in him. It was never about law-keeping in terms of how we stand relationally before God. It was about his action rescuing us from ourselves, from the, the guilt of sin and the impact of sin on us. He has truly freed us from that. But in context of Galatians, Paul is telling us that we are free from law-keeping as the primary way you set yourself apart as God's people. The primary way you're set set apart as God's people is that Jesus has made a change in you and brought you into a family that He is making on the earth. Us, gathered here today, is the primary way we are set apart as God's people. And so that is a gift that Paul is giving us. And what it does is it offends the sensibilities of everyone, basically. Now, some of the categories that are used when you talk about this passage from Galatians, some of the categories that are used talks about legalists and libertines. Let me explain what those mean. The legalists are those who are looking at how they relate consistently to God in terms of what they do, what their performance is, how they keep the law. And so when Paul says you are truly deeply free, he's confronting the sensibility of the legalist. It's no longer be good for goodness sake or be careful little hands what you do, all right? It's not about dodging lightning strikes when you transgress. Our life is no longer controlled by avoiding judgment with no true relationship to God. But that's not the only way to be a legalist. Sometimes we need to remember that sometimes the legalism we fall into is thinking that we need to shape up in order to enter the kingdom or maintain our relationship with God through external compliance to the law. We think that we've got to shape up and make ourselves presentable. And yet, that's never been the picture of how God brings the people to himself. Throughout the scriptures, it's not just in Paul presenting New Testament Christianity to the world. It's actually something you see from the very first pages of scripture and on through. God of his own will is loving us and calling us into relationship with him, even though he shouldn't really associate with us because of sin because of our messed up nature, because of how wrong we get it. It's also not trying to receive the grace of God and yet still attempting to relate to God through moral vigor 
and ethical purity. It's not staying busy with how we're trying to offer ourselves to God. Now, I know that many of you may not struggle with that, but some do. And I know that there are seasons in my life where I come up to circumstances I did not expect and I ask things like, is it something about me? What did I do? And there are plenty of messages that reinforce that in the culture around us. You know, talking about karma casually as this rigorous cause and effect dynamic to the universe is what leads to thinking that I've got to scrub-a-dub and make myself right in order to stay good with God. But that's not how God plays this. This is not how He relates to us. He relates to us out of love. And so this legalism seeps in on all kinds of edges. You know, it's not the sound of music. Somewhere, sometime, I must have done something good. It's actually, this is just how God rolls. And it confronts the sensibility of legalism. It also confronts the sensibility of libertines. And libertines are those people who are like, oh, I've got freedom in Christ? Then guess what? This hot mess is never going to change. I am going to eat eight pounds of Cheetos between now and midnight, and you are all invited to join me, but bring your own because they're all for me. That's not necessarily healthy for me. That's not healthy for us. But this is how that libertine mindset seeps in because we start to think that the freedom that Paul's talking about is a license to do whatever our appetites demand. When we are talking about the freedom that Paul is describing here, we have to recognize it's not a freedom from any restraint on our flesh. And when we talk about the flesh, when Paul talks about the flesh particularly, he's talking about the bodily predisposition to be inward-focused, self-serving, self-protecting. That is what sin has done to us and continues to wrestle in us. Even as we've come to faith in Jesus and His Holy Spirit is living inside us and directing us, helping us to understand how we live in a brand new way, we still have those old habits, those old ruts of thinking, of feeling, of moving into the world that just move us inward so that we're so closed down we can't even function properly. You know, and it's too easy for me now to just think, yes, my precious, but that's just a postural thing, right? And yet that's how we are about ourselves. We want to preserve and protect ourself. And so when Paul is saying, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's confronting us. He's saying, don't lose your freedom and don't abuse your freedom. Don't lose your freedom. Don't abuse your freedom. And if you're wondering where I got that, I did get that from St. Timothy of Manhattan. But that is, the, that is the reality of what we are living in. Because... What Paul's wanting to do is he's wanting to really, truly set us free with what follows in verses 14 and 15. For the whole law 
all of the requirements that God set forth of how to reflect His holy character in our lives, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I say, what? And yet, here it is. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He's really laying it out. Because of our self-inward turn in sin, we would rather destroy one another than actually give space to one another and be there for one another. And the real turn here isn't quite as obvious as we might want to think. I'm going to explain it this way. The legalist has one question that's guiding their whole life, and it is, what must I do to appease God? And that's what leads to this sense of earning our merit. It's really living in a way that's serving the debt of our sin. And the libertine, the libertine's guiding question in life is, what must I do to appease myself? And so we get wrapped up in this, uh, this constant cycle of excusing our excess. We get on a contact high with the grace of God, and then we're living a life that our, our unbelieving pagan neighbors are looking at and saying, man, that is too much. Because we're serving the demands of our sin. God doesn't want us to serve the debt of our sin. He doesn't want us to serve the demands of our sin. What He wants to do is free us so that we can truly be Christian. Because the Christian's guiding question is, what can I do to please God? Notice, it's not a must. It's a freedom. It's a, what can I do? I want to get in there. Instead of serving the debt of our sin or the demands of our sin, we actually get caught up in serving the delight of our God. It's what Chalmers would describe as the expulsive power of a new affection, which if you want to think of it this way, our affection, whatever it is that we're focused on, if it's our self and protecting ourselves or serving ourselves and our appetites, we cling to it. And we're so focused on it, we're so brought in by it that we don't recognize even the call of Jesus who has claimed us. But what happens as His Spirit opens our eyes to the true freedom we have, we let go of that because we're so caught up in what He has done for us and what He is doing for us and doing in us. It's not a cognitive behavioral therapy where we're retraining our brains to say yes to God's goodness. It's actually getting so caught up in the beauty of what God is doing in us and through us that we forget and abandon the things that used to be our idols, that used to be the things that we would sacrifice our health and well-being to serve. That's the beauty of what Paul is presenting here. So the turn isn't, hey, stop this and do this. The turn, it's not about redirecting that self-interest, but in getting outside of ourselves as the primary referent of our lives. 
It's actually delighting in what God wants, what God is interested in. I don't know if you've seen this. I've seen a little pattern. Like I, I have honed down the amount of social media I interact with dramatically, and I'm still encountering it about 30 minutes to an hour a day, right? Which probably makes you wonder, was this guy always with his nose in his phone? It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I was diagnosed with ADD at 39 years old, you know? <laughs> like, of course, a distraction engine is exactly what my brain wants, you know? So any other dopamine addicts out there, what, what? Um, but what I've noticed in what little social media I consume these days is that there's a new meme, a new idea that's out there in the world called being the main character. Have you seen this? And basically, it's calling out the behavior of people who are acting as if they're the main character, that their life is actually a movie about them. And so other people cannot be as important because obviously they're the main character. Do you realize that whether we think we're awesome or we think we're terrible, because of sin, this is actually something we all suffer from. And the good news is that we are not the main character in our own lives. God is the main character because He's the one who created us, redeems us, and is remaking us into who we ought to be, which is inherently someone who relates to Him and to all the other wonderful image bearers around us. That's so much better of a story. That's so much more lasting of a story. And with our lives getting so much richer and fuller and more spectacular when they're not focused on us, what we start to recognize is what Paul is pointing to here, which is the crux of it all is love. True, deep, motivating love. Love for God and love for people because in love, we are freed from the tyranny of our self. We are truly, lastingly freed from it being about us. I referenced Tim Keller earlier, and one of the things that was distressing to me in reading the different remembrances that were all over, everywhere, over the last two weeks, one of the things that was distressing to me was that there were people that I even, like, respect who were making his passing about themselves. And I think we're all prone to it. But when we really are connected deeply to Jesus, understanding our freedom, we're freed from having to make it about ourselves. We're free from this despot that lives within us in our flesh. And Really, it just resonates so deeply with all the things that Jesus taught us about who He is and how He is to relate to us. It's really about our branchness, if you get the idea. John 15, when Jesus is saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, our significance is not about our introspection, it's about our connectedness. It's about how we are drawn into deep connection with God and with others. So in order for us to reconnect with this perfect and complete freedom we have in Jesus, I would propose that we actually need to do a better job of 
playing with our friends. Right? That's good news, isn't it, brother? Yeah. We need to do a better job of playing with our friends. And what I mean by that is we're delighting together. Delighting together in the goodness of God. Seeking out that spiritual friendship that's mutually encouraging but also mutually challenging. It's a deeper connectedness that begins with our being freed in Jesus rather than with the tiny idolatries of affinities, stage of life, common careers, common interest, or even commitment level. Nobody wants another failed accountability group so they can further hone their skills at lying to themselves and others. It is the invitation to run together through the city and delight in the goodness of God all around us and in our connection together. Better yet, it's an opportunity to run together in the garden that God is making in the midst of our city in the relationships that we have together. And to borrow from C.S. Lewis and the imagery he uses to finish out the stories of Narnia, it's an invitation for us together to run further up and further in to the goodness of God. So that's the first of my nine points. <laughs> I love that you guys are paying attention. Do you, are you this nice to Brad, or is it just because I'm new? Like, uh, um, but now we need to talk about how the rubber meets the road, and that's when we jump to chapter 6. And in the first 10 verses of chapter 6, we really see that this freedom to love has a lot to it. Um, my family of origin was and still is a piece of work, um, which is what you say in Texas when you don't have time to describe just how messed up it is. <laughs> but even with a complicated family, I recognize my need, my desire, my longing to love them well in as much as I can, in as much as I should, sometimes in spite of a lack of love from them. But family is the right picture to paint for how we enter into this profound freedom because we are bound by our love for one another. We're not bound by the oaths we take, maybe by the funny sashes or hats that we wear when we gather. No, we're bound by that love. And what God is calling us to is He's calling us into relationship with His people. And it is a way to say, welcome to the family. But the picture that Paul uses is very realistic. It reminds me of what someone described as um, the reality of the church, of being the church, right? If it, it's like the ark, it's like Noah's Ark, right? If it were not for the flood outside, you probably wouldn't put up with the stink inside. <laughs> and that's the reality that we're in in the church. We are not a gathering of perfected people. We're a gathering of people who are being remade. 
And if anything teaches you more about the ups and downs of being remade, try remodeling even a small portion of your house. And I hear the knowing laughter of others who've had to do it. It it pushes all of your buttons at the same time. But that also helps inform how we understand this. Because what love looks like in the body of Christ, in the church, is messy. Chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restoration of those caught in a transgression. How do we handle it when someone messes up? Notice he's not talking about like an official like disciplinary action. He's not referencing Jesus talking about, yeah, and if they still aren't responding, go get the elders. No, this is like, hey, what you said was unkind and it hurt my feelings. Something that we might want to brush off and say, come on, life is too short to go get all, you know, into every little bit of that. But what happens when someone messes up? And what happens when someone messes up is that we have to do the hard work of relational repair. And this is why he says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We are not to be the drill instructor in other people's lives. You call that a contribution to a shared meal? That's not how we're supposed to come across. Arlie Ermey was not an example of how to talk to our siblings in Christ. We are to do it gently, and that's why it's about relational repair. It's not something that we necessarily even see done well in our culture. In our culture, we don't see it nearly as often as we see shaming, avoidance, passive-aggressive behavior. I mean, if you're that kind of person. And the way that so many times, even the things we use to entertain ourselves, laud and applaud vindictive behavior. Well, I got him back. Well, I put her in her place. This is not the way we do relational repair. And so, what is Paul telling us? Well, let's go a little bit further. He reminds us, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. He's saying, as you're going to help somebody, don't fall into the same problem. But also, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Go and be with them in the messiness of how they need to repair, of how they need to change their ways. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. What we're hearing in this is an interdependent discipleship. We need each other in order to grow, in order to find the ways we're going to delight our God. And we need each other because also as we're in the life of another, we too need to consistently be humbled to not make comparisons, that it's not about us doing better than the other, it's us 
trying to please God in how He has called us to please Him. And this is where, like, the rub continues. The legalist wants to compare himself to others. The libertine wants to avoid any thought that they have an obligation to others. But for Christians, discipleship is a joint venture as the people of Jesus. And that's what Paul's communicating to the Galatians. And I think it's something that we need to hear fresh because we need to understand that we have been called into a new way of thinking about who we are and how we live and move in the world. Our motivations are changed. Our whole outlook has changed. The telos that we're aiming to to, to fulfill the goal that we have ultimately for our whole life is something where we enjoy the goodness of God. That's radically different from, I've just got to make sure that I make it to the next paycheck or to the next stage of my career or to the next phase of our family life or to the next set of friendships that I develop. Those are so short-sighted because in the long term, we need to have our life oriented around what God has called us to. What if? What if the way we care for one another becomes actually the point of curiosity and the point of attraction to our neighbors? Where they see the way we actually show up for one another and they say, I don't know what's going on there, but I want in. I want to be a part of that. What if the way we are restored to those we've had serious and protracted disagreements with is actually the first taste of God's goodness that others experience. And I can say that because one of the things of my family of origin is that we held grudges. It was actually the currency in my family of origin. And one of the first things that attracted me to following Jesus was being around a family where they had disagreements, they would have loud fights, they would yell across the house at each other, but then they would reconcile, they would forgive one another, and it was over. And that was the thing that was shocking to me. I saw the, re the restoration of affection, the restoration of communication. I saw it, and it was something I had never experienced. And this is part of what Paul is calling out to us. He's saying, guys, we can be that kind of place, that kind of people. What if individually we were so free in Jesus that the cost of being with people in their mess was still something we thought of as a privilege? I think that's what he's calling us to. What if our prerogative was not a list of rights, but a resource that we stewarded in service to our beloved community? So then Paul goes into something else because he wants to unpack that concept for us. What will it cost us? And so we hear in verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. It may feel like a record scratch. It may feel like there's no continuity between what he just said and what he says here because what he says here is basically you should pay your pastors. Now, I'm a guest here, so I don't have a dog in this hunt. 
I also don't have any access to your books, so I'm just going to assume everything's rosy. But why would Paul feel like he has to talk about this? It's because when we think of ourselves as a family, some people, some individuals, and some entire churches say, if we're all family, then the person who teaches us should just do it anyway, right? And Paul is saying, wrong. You need to financially support the main teachers of your church because it's just the right thing to do. It's actually honoring the labor they put into it. This is not a shelf sermon that I'm giving you today. I worked on it. I know that Brad works tirelessly to develop those things that he leads you in. He deserves to be compensated for that. And I'm not saying it because I think you're not doing it. I'm saying it because it's a good thing to say. But Paul is saying it because he's using it as this one example to get to the larger concept. And that larger concept is essentially you get what you pay for. The way you allocate your resources demonstrates actually what you do care about. Really resonating with Jesus there, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he's saying this because there's a lot there. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's basically saying, if you're still so self-focused that you're not willing to give up something for the greater good of the community, guess what? You're going to rot. You're not going to grow. But if you're willing to give up for the sake of the community, guess what? You're going to flourish, and there's going to be a lot of good that comes out of it. And when we're talking about this, like some people spiritualize their own preferences. I mean, that's actually something we can all be guilty of, is we theologize, spiritualize our preferences. You know, I could probably give you a pretty good theological discourse on why Radiohead is something you should listen to all the time. <laughs> but I also recognize that's my preference, right? Likewise, there are those who actually spiritualize their preferences when it comes to their resources, their time, their money, their attention. They attach spiritual significance to miserly pursuits, getting the best deal or having a percentage saved for a rainy day. And this sometimes is at odds with the generosity that Jesus taught us to practice. So the big picture really is you reap what you sow. And the punchline in verses 9 and 10 is this, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What he's saying is that in being freed from the tyranny of the self, we can actually be super generous with our time, our money, and our attention. We can sit with those who are aching and mourning and hurting. We can give generously to those who need. We can be the kind of people who show up 
and really focus in and pay attention to what God is doing in our midst. This is the freedom that we're being called to in Christ. It means that we will see our lives and especially our resources as means to further love our God and His people, to further delight Him with how we want to please Him because we know how much He loves us and we are so energized to love Him well. Amen? Amen. So when we come to this realization, we come to a place and a time when we share in the goodness and the bounty of what God has given us. We're invited to a meal. In the ancient world, being invited to a meal was a primary way of calling out who you are by who you're associating with. And Jesus, for reasons all his own, wants to be associated with me, with you, with all of us. He wants to be associated with us so much that he gave us a meal that reminds us of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. The primary ingredient here is maybe not necessarily the wine or the bread. Those are elements that teach us who Jesus is and what he has done. But the primary element here, the primary ingredient is faith. If you have trusted Jesus, if you're trusting him even today to set you free of your sins and to help you to grow in a life that delights God the Father, then this meal is for you. If you're not there yet, that's okay. I wasn't there yet for several months before I finally came around the age of 19. If you're not there yet, it's, it's still a beautiful time to reflect on Jesus, who he is, and what he has claimed to have done on our behalf. So take this time to reflect and pray, or just think about what God would have you do next. But if you haven't come to that place where you've trusted Jesus, refrain from this celebration and just honor the time as others take part. But if your faith is in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you've been struggling, if you've been failing forward all week, this meal is for you because it reminds us of what he has done on our behalf. Because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. And likewise... After the supper, he took the cup, and he said, In this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. As Paul reminds us, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes again. So it is not just something we receive, it's something we're stating about our lives, that this is who we belong to, and who we long to be a better and better reflection of. So as we gather around this meal, I invite you to take part if you are trusting Jesus. And when we celebrate this meal together, you'll just gather with about eight to ten others around these tables, this one and the one on the other side. 
And there we will receive the elements. And we encourage you to take this opportunity to drink deeply, to feast on the goodness of Jesus that he gave to us. I'm going to pray for us right now. And as I pray for us, pray for yourself that God would speak to you during this time about how he would have you delight him in just receiving well the grace he pours out into our lives. Would you bow your heads with me as I lead us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal, this rich meal, this feast of your grace. We pray that you would use these common elements to encourage us, to speak the truth to us through all of our senses, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, lead all of us, even those who are refraining today from this celebration, that you would speak to all of us about how you would have us move closer to you, better reflecting your goodness in our lives. And for those children who are in our midst who have yet to profess their faith before the leadership of the church here at the table, we pray, Lord, that you would quicken their hearts, that they would soon come to that recognition of their need and embrace Jesus as their Savior and to name him as such. And Lord, we ask that you would use all of this time for your glory, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you.